You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is uh, the appendix to Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature by Rudolf Steiner. And these are some additional talks that he gave during the time that he was in Helsinki. First one is addressed to the Russian participants in the lecture course, The Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature, given in Helsinki, April 11, 1912. Our involvement with the life and knowledge of theosophy is constantly deepening. But as it does so, from the depth of our hearts, one question keeps arising. Why do we wish to bring theosophy into the spiritual life of our times? But whenever the question arises, one word emerges in our soul, almost effortlessly, a word that will clarify, and more than clarify, our feelings in the matter, the word responsibility. Responsibility, this single word, should be enough to banish immediately from our souls and hearts any notion that our involvement with theosophy is primarily aimed at satisfying some personal longing. If we then try to understand what this word responsibility signifies for us, consciously or not, in relation to the spiritual life of theosophy, we shall see more and more clearly that our concern with theosophy is something we owe to contemporary humankind as well as to the best in ourselves. We cannot study theosophy for the pure pleasure it gives us or to appease any private longing, On the contrary, we must feel that today's humanity needs theosophy if the whole process of human evolution is to go forward. We must indeed recognize that without theosophy, or whatever you like to call it, without the particular spiritual life that we have in mind, human life on earth will face a truly desolate future. The reason for this is that all the spiritual impulses of the past are exhausted. Everything that has been given to humanity by way of spiritual impulses is gradually dying away, and it cannot sow any seeds for human development in the future. If nothing but the old impulses were to operate, the only future in sight would be one in which technology would not only dominate the whole of our external life, but would overpower and paralyze us, driving out from the human soul anything of a religious, scientific, philosophical, and artistic, and even of an ethical nature in the higher sense. Without fresh spiritual impulses, humans will turn into something like living automatons. Thus, when we think of theosophy, we must feel that we are the ones led by karma to some knowledge of the fact that humanity needs new spiritual impulses. At this point we may ask, what can each one of us, with his or her individual qualities and attributes, do regarding this responsibility? In answering this deeply felt question, it will be instructive to consider how theosophy came into the modern world and how it has developed through the last decades up to the present. We must never forget that the way in which the word theosophy has come into the world in the recent past amounts to something of a cultural miracle. This extraordinary phenomenon is connected with a certain personality who stands very near to you since she had her spiritual roots among your people. I mean, of course, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, 
and no one in Western Europe would possibly maintain that the body in which the individuality known in this incarnation as Helena Petrovna Blavatsky was contained could have emerged anywhere but in Eastern Europe, in Russia, for she had all the Russian qualities. But as the result of a peculiar chain of circumstances she was taken out of your midst, and the particular karmic karmic conditions of the present time led her over to the West. Let us see, then, what sort of strange cultural wonder this really was. Take first her actual personality. Fundamentally, she remained throughout her life a child, in many respects a genuine child. She never really learned to think logically, never learned how to hold and check her passions and impulses and desires, which in any case tended always to extremes. She really had very little scientific education. Through this personality, through the medium of this personality, one must say, there was revealed a comprehensive body of great external wisdom pertaining to humankind, but revealed as a confused, chaotic medley. Those familiar with such matters will find in Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's works examples of wisdom, truth, and knowledge, which the person Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's intellect and soul could never have come near to understanding. To anyone looking at the facts without prejudice, it must be obvious that her ordinary soul and intellect were merely a channel, a medium whereby great and significant powers were able to communicate with humanity. It is equally clear that if things had gone as they were expected to go at the beginning of the last third of the nineteenth century, the desired impression could not have been made on anyone in Western Europe. It took the quite peculiar nature of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, a nature almost literally selfless, devoid of self on the one hand, and on the other thoroughly self-centered and egotistic, in order to bring about what in fact was brought about by higher spiritual powers. The selfless side was necessary because any Western European mind would have transformed all that was revealed to it into its own thought patterns, its own intellection. The self-centered, egotistic side was necessary because given the crudely materialistic way of life in Western Europe at that time, only an extreme temperament such as hers could, as it were, put an iron glove on the fragile hands whose task it was to nurture and cultivate occultism of the modern age. It is indeed a remarkable phenomenon. But Helena Petrovna Blavatsky made her way to the West, to the civilization which in its whole style and structure and configuration was the most thoroughly materialistic civilization of our modern age, America accepted, one which was completely materialistic in its language, feelings, and ways of thinking. It would take us too long to explain which power it was that led Helena Petrovna Blavatsky precisely to England. Nevertheless, the summa of occultism, which came so remarkably to expression through a medium, I do not mean this in a spiritualistic sense, was guided first of all to Western Europe. Within this European West, the destiny of occultism was sealed, for with the foundation of the theosophical movement in the materialistic environment of Western Europe, an important strand of karma came to fulfillment. The European West bears a weighty karmic debt and can never penetrate the secrets of existence without in some way activating this karmic obligation. Wherever occultism comes into the picture, that karma is immediately deepened, forces are brought to the surface which would otherwise have remained hidden. What I now have to say is not said critically, but merely to describe what happened. While carrying out an historically necessary task, Western Europe perpetrated countless injustices against the bearers of an old spiritual culture and its occult secrets. 
As a result, this old spiritual life is now truly frozen, no longer available for the present time, although it lives on in the depths of human souls. This is truly what has happened in India, in South Asia. At the moment when occult impulses came to Western Europe, a reaction immediately immediately set in against the spiritual forces active in the depths of Indian culture, and it became impossible, impossible even in the days of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, to hold fast what certain spiritual powers had intended to be the spiritual movement fitted for our time. The intention had been to give human beings a body of occult teachings that would be suitable for all human beings, for all hearts, one in which anyone and everyone could partake. But when, due to various necessities, the new impulse was transplanted into Western Europe, an egotistic reaction set in. The spiritual powers, whose wish it had been to bestow a new impulse on the whole of humanity, without any differentiation, were thrust into the background, and India, which had suffered from the suppression of its own occultism, took the first opportunity for karmic revenge. The moment occultism appeared in the West, India brought in its own form of self-centered national occultism. This was happening in the time of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, even while she was gathering the great truths and wisdom of her secret doctrine. Her first work, Isis Unveiled, brings out the chaotic, illogical, passionate confusion of her nature, but it also shows throughout that behind her were guardian powers who wished to lead her toward the universally human. The secret doctrine was written, we find, side by side with the genuinely great, a special human bias emanating from certain occult centers, representative of a parochial, particularistic interest, not the interests of humanity at large. Today the Tibetan, Indian, and even the Egyptian initiations do not have an impartial human interest at heart. They merely want to take revenge on the West for the suppression of Eastern occultism and for the conquest of the East by the materialistic resources of the Western world. The West did indeed conquer the East by materialistic means, but it conquered, in quotes, also insofar as Christianity was accepted into the true progressive stream of human evolution. Christianity did not pass over from Asia to the East, nor did it go from Asia to the South. It traveled from the East to the West. Now, my dear theosophical friends, you may well say, so all's well, after all. The West accepted Christianity, and since Christianity is a stage in the progress of humanity, it is only natural that on this account the West should have triumphed over the East. If only that were so, then it would be easy to understand. But it is not like that at all. The Christianity which finally came into the world after hundreds and thousands of years of preparation has still not won the victory anywhere on earth. Anyone who could believe today that in any true and genuine sense he or she represents the Christ principle and the Christ impulse would have fallen prey to indescribable arrogance. What then has really happened? Simply that the peoples of of Western Europe have taken over some of the most external aspects of Christianity and in the name of Christ have clothed their old warlike cultures in the trappings of modern industrialism. No member of any occult movement would ever grant that Christ has reigned at any time in our so-called Christian Europe. On the contrary, he would say, you talk of Christ, but you still really mean what the old peoples of Central Europe meant when they spoke of the god Saxnot. The symbol of the crucifix stands over the peoples of Europe, but in a certain way the traditions of the god Saxnot still prevail. Saxnot is spelled S-A-X-N-O-T. His symbol was the old Saxon short sword, 
signifying the expansion of material interests alone, for that was the vocation of the old Middle European tribes, and this vocation produced the finest flower of materialistic culture, the institution of knighthood. In no other culture will you find anything like Western knighthood. One shouldn't even dream of comparing the heroes of the Trojan War with the medieval knights. So Christ still lives very little among human beings. They merely speak of him. Hence, while the Westerners speak of the Christ, the Eastern peoples feel that they themselves are far ahead in spiritual understanding of the world and in knowledge of the secrets of existence. The Eastern peoples know that with certainty. Some quite ordinary things will show you that the Eastern peoples rightly value their superiority in spiritual matters. How do most Western people respond when secrets of existence are to be disclosed? Well, we hold very small gatherings where, let us say, we are to speak about the prevailing spiritual powers and the secrets which surround us everywhere as we were yesterday evening. For ordinary Western Europeans look on that sort of thing as folly or madness. They are still unable to understand Paul saying, quote, God's wisdom is often folly to humanity, and what is folly to humanity is wisdom to God, unquote. No one in the East, unless infected by Westerners there, would dream of quibbling about the deep truths concerning the spiritual secrets of the cosmos as we try to reveal them here. For to those who live within the spiritual life of the East, things like the ones we were discussing yesterday, for example, are self-evident. So it is not surprising that when these Eastern peoples were assailed by Europeans, they often felt rather as people feel when attacked by a herd of wild beasts. They defend themselves, but without resentment, for they look on the assailants as an inferior species. For the reasons I have given, whether or not these are still justified today is irrelevant here. We Westerners are regarded by all adherents of Brahmanism and in accordance with Eastern traditions as obviously inferior beings. Let us now turn from Brahmanism and consider the cultures of Central Asia, the Tibetan or Chinese culture. In the quite near future, these cultures will acquire for the world a significance of which people today have no notion, although it, would not, it will not be long before this comes about. If we look at all this and realize that the souls of many pupils of Zarathustra are even now incarnated in those cultures, we shall have to take these things very seriously. We shall also see how into Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's communications, Indian, Tibetan, and Egyptian occultists have been able to introduce their own heritage of wisdom, although by nature it belongs to a past stage of human development. We must recognize this outdated element in the Blavatsky teachings, and we must not look away from the fact that if Chinese culture were to break its chains and run over the Western world, it would bring with it a spirituality which in many respects is the still unaltered successor of the old Atlantean culture. It would be as though something that had been under pressure were to fly asunder and scatter throughout the world. On a small scale, this is what the old culture of India has done at the very first opportunity. As a result of this, the theosophical movement has acquired a distinctive character which no longer makes it a suitable instrument for the further evolution of European culture. Any occultist is familiar with the saying that no special interest of any kind must be allowed to override the general interest of humanity, either on the part of the leading powers of occultism or on the part of anybody active in occult dealings. It is impossible to be effective in the occult realm if a special interest comes to prevail over the general interest of humanity. 
The moment a parochial interest takes the place of universal human interests, the field is open for substantial errors. That is why since that time every possible error has crept into the theosophical movement. England's karmic connections with India made it possible for those sublime powers who presided over the birth of the theosophical movement to be falsely impersonated. It is quite ordinary in occultism for powers bent on pursuing their own special interest to assume the guise of those from whom the true impulse had originally come. So from a certain point in time it became impossible to accept without demure all that was contained in the theosophical movement, and that karma saw to it that this became less and less possible as time went on. Hence, when the call came for us to join forces with the theosophical movement, we could do nothing else than go back to the original sources, those sources which stood for humanity as a whole, as against any special interest. And so you may have seen that, in Central Europe, we tried to go back to the original sources in such a way that you will not encounter anything connected with any special interest. If you compare whatever special interests can be found in Central Europe and in theosophy as we pursue it here, you will find them entirely incompatible. You can take this theosophy, and apart from the fact that my books are written in German, since they must, after all, be written in some language, you will find nothing distinctively German in it, nothing connected with the external traditions of Central Europe. And wherever the temptation arises to connect theosophy with any special interest, you immediately reach an impasse. It has been the particular task of Central Europe to free theosophy from these special characteristics it has acquired in Western Europe. Our mission was to purify theosophy by removing any trace of special interests from it. And the further you delve into these matters, the more clearly will you see that to a certain extent I personally was well placed to detach my contribution to theosophy from any particular interest. If If I may put it symbolically, I needed only to allow myself to be guided by an impulse which sprang directly from my present incarnation. Please don't misunderstand what I am saying here. I am really stating facts. The people who were the physical bearers of the blood from which I am descended all came from the German districts of Austria, but I myself could not be born there. I was born in a Slavonic region, which was entirely alien to the whole character of the environment from which my forefathers came. So from the very start of my present incarnation it was impressed upon me, again in a symbolic sense, that our task in Central Europe is that of freeing theosophy from any kind of special interest, so that theosophy might stand before us as a goddess, untouched by any human bias, and as relevant to people living in one place as to those living in another. This is our ideal, and we must keep it before us always, for, simple as it may sound, it is much, much easier to talk about than to achieve. It must stand for us as our ideal of truth and integrity, truth unsullied and divine. If we strive for this, not for our own sake, but so as to endow theosophy with that impersonal character which Central Europe has to develop for Europe as a whole, then perhaps we may find the way by which this divine theosophy can be transmitted to the East. And if I now go on to describe further how theosophy, having found a place in the West, should pass through Europe to the East, I would like once more to emphasize most strongly the word I mentioned earlier, responsibility, a sense of responsibility. The cultures of the world evolve as though within a spiritual sheath that develops one culture by way of another. One culture becomes linked with another. Because theosophy in Central Europe had to be so impersonal, 
it has acquired a particular kind of spirituality, one that remains neutral in relation to all special interests. On this account it has a certain dryness about it, the dryness that comes from being untouched by such interests. As a result, it will not appeal to people who are unable to open their hearts to anything which does not serve a particular interest of some kind. But the spirituality which belongs to this theosophy can be found by souls who long and thirst for it. And here I must tell you that I became acquainted with a soul out of the spiritual world, a soul with a great longing for the spirit that expresses itself through theosophy. It was in the purely spiritual world that I came to know this soul. When we go up through the ranks of the hierarchies and come to the individual folk spirits and then speak of the folk souls within the folk spirits, among the folk souls who are, so to speak, still young and have to evolve further, as every being must, we find the Russian folk soul. I know that this Russian folk soul longs, longs with all its strength for the spirit that finds expression in theosophy. I have spoken here of the sense of responsibility because you, my dear theosophical friends, are children of this Russian folk soul. It reigns and works within you, and you have a responsibility toward it. You must learn this responsibility. Do not take it amiss when I say that this Russian folk soul was able to tell me many things. Most tragic of all was what it could show me in the year 1900 or thereabouts, because it was possible then to see something which I was not able to interpret correctly until much later, how little the Russian folk soul is understood today. We have learned much, very much from Russia, and much of it has made a great impression on us. We have come to know the powerful impulses of Tolstoy, the psychology of Dostoevsky, which set its mark so deeply on Western Europe, and finally we have learned to know such a man as Soloviev, a man who makes us feel, if we let him work upon us, that as he wrote, so he was. And we see his writings in their true light only if we feel that, only if we feel behind him stands the Russian folk soul. And this Russian folk soul has far more to say than Soloviev himself could say, for with him we still always feel that much, much too much derives from Western Europe. Think of this responsibility. Think of this word, responsibility. And remember that your task is to make yourselves worthy of the Russian folk soul and to recognize its longing for impersonal theosophy. Then having learned to know the innermost impulse of this theosophy, you will find yourselves asking all sorts of questions which can be put to the spirit of theosophy only by a Russian soul. I have experienced so much fine and noble and beautiful feeling coming to meet me from Eastern Europe, so much true human love and goodness and overflowing sympathy, that one can attribute it only to an unusually delicate and intimate observation of all that the world has to give and to a close personal connection with the powers of existence. And out of these noble and beautiful feelings, many, many questions have been put to me by our Russian members, questions which must be put, because unless they are answered, humanity will not be able to live in the future. The questions that can come only from Eastern Europe were formerly put to me only by the Russian folk soul on the higher planes. I was often led to think that the children of this folk soul still have a means of understanding the true longing of their folk soul, and yet how far they are still separated from it. Do not in this account shrink from finding the way to your folk soul, for you can find it if you really want to. You will learn from your folk soul the questions that must be answered if humanity is to have a future. Do not be afraid of leaving behind you all personal interests, and be mindful of the great responsibility you have toward the Russian folk soul, 
for in the future the folk souls will need their human children in order to reach their goals. And do not forget one thing. The same power that can carry a person to the heights, the most beautiful, light-filled heights of the world, that same power will most of all lay open, lay him open to the danger of falling into errors. Your task is to permeate the spiritual with the necessary element of soul. This is something you can do, because the Russian folk soul has immeasurable depths and potentialities for the future. At the same time, you must recognize that the soul element, which can raise itself to the spiritual and permeate it, exposes you to a great danger of losing yourselves in the personal and of remaining stuck there. For the personal is particularly strong when nourished from the element of soul. You will not come up against the many obstacles that keep arising in Central and Western Europe. You are less inclined towards skepticism. It cannot touch you except by infection from Western Europe. You will have a certain feeling for learning to distinguish truth from untruth and dishonesty in the realm of occultism, where truth and charlatanry are such close neighbors. Neither skepticism nor cynicism will be a danger for you. Your danger will be that the strength of soul in your personalities can surround you with astral clouds, which would then block your way to the objectively spiritual. Your fire and warmth could spread around you a cloudy aura through which the spiritual would be unable to penetrate. Your very enthusiasm for the spiritual could hinder the spirit from finding its way to you. But you have one great advantage, in a spiritual sense I mean, for whereas in Central Europe theosophy has to be taken as a divine power raised above all human concerns, it is your destiny, which means the destiny of your folk soul, to receive theosophy in the special interests of the Russian people and to cultivate and cherish it as your very own, which is something no other people can do. You have been equipped by your destiny to breathe into the spirit the element of soul. That has often been said in our circles, but now it is up to you to take the first possible opportunity not merely to cultivate your feelings and your will, but above all to develop energy and persistence. If I may speak in practical terms, you should learn to talk less about what theosophy has to be in the West and in Russia and what is good in the one case or in the other and so forth, and resolve to unite yourselves heart and soul with theosophy. The rest will then follow. It will certainly follow. That is something of what I wanted to say to you, my dear friends, because whenever I come to speak directly to people as human beings, there must stand before us that feeling of responsibility which we, as human beings of the present day, owe to theosophy. In the West, people should feel that if they could receive something of theosophy and decide to reject it, they are sinning against humanity, nothing less. That may be hard to grasp, for one must have an almost transcendental feeling of obligation if this responsibility towards humanity is to be embraced. Your own folk soul speaks to you of it, for your folk soul has itself assumed this responsibility toward mankind. You have only to find the way to this folk soul. You need only allow your thoughts, perceptions and impulses of will to speak, and then, if you have this feeling of responsibility toward your folk soul, you will at the same time fulfill your obligation toward humankind. It is on this account that you are placed geographically between the European West, which must have theosophy but cannot make it a personal concern to the same extent that you can, and the Asiatic East, which has possessed occultism and a spiritual culture since primeval times. In this difficult geographical situation, 
You might not be able to accomplish your task for the spiritual culture of mankind if you had to think only of your obligation to humanity. You will be exposed to very great temptations, for active on one side of you is Western Europe, which has led many children of your folk soul to be untrue in a fundamental sense to themselves. A great deal that has been written about Russia and has been brought to us in the West gives one the feeling that it has nothing to do with the Russian folk soul, but is a reflection of all kinds of things in the West. The second temptation will come from the East, when the power of that spiritual culture reaches you. It will then be for you to realize that however great may be this spiritual culture of the East, the task for modern people is not to preserve the past, but to carry new impulses into the future, not simply to accept any kind of spiritual impulse that comes from the East, but to cherish that which the West can draw from its own spiritual sources. If you fulfill your obligations to your folk soul, the time will come in Europe to begin with when there will be a little understanding of what the Christ impulse means in the whole evolution of humanity. Seek everything I have tried to say to you, and seek above all to find whatever in these words can become an impulse of your own, an impulse that will not merely enable you to feel and experience that theosophy is something great and significant, but will lead you to take theosophy into the reality and willing of your own souls, and to direct your lives and your actions in accordance with it. The end of the Russian first lecture.